Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who looks absolutely fabulous in a blonde wig. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, fortunately, when I'm wearing my blonde wigs, uh, sunglasses, and raincoat, I only ever meet just the most distracted, incompetent police officers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just don't notice. In existence. Yeah, who don't. Who don't notice me just exuding uh, guilt. Yeah, just exuding uh, that I'm committing turn. crimes vibes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, you know, that's good. It's good. We have a guest today. We do. Jason Westhaver has requested to join us on Chungking Express. Welcome, Jason. Hey, it's one of my favorite films, so I figure I'd better show up for it. Yeah, uh, we uh, we don't we haven't really advertised this fact for for a long time. But something we were very adamant at at the beginning is that uh, if you see that we're doing a movie you want to join us for, just ask because we'll say yes. <laughs> yeah, it's almost I mean, guaranteed. If we can get the scheduling worked out, we'll say yes. It's almost guaranteed. Uh, so Jason saw that we were coming up and uh, just just in time asked to be on Chungking Express. No, it was a few weeks ago. But uh, <laughs> but we were uh, we are recording a little closer than we had been in the past. Yeah, so. I mean, we're still usually, what, uh, uh, three, two, three weeks out? Three weeks. We're three weeks out right now. Well, it's it's kind of fortunate you're actually recording at this time. Because, I, I mean, it's not going to make any sense necessarily when this goes live, but right now we just had the World of Wong Kar Wai box set released, and mm-hmm. we're two years on in the Criterion channel, and this was the second week of their free movie of a week before the service launched. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's good. Do you have the uh, new box set? Uh, I do not because I have bought a house and have a child on the way, so <laughs> Blu-rays are not a priority right now. I that makes that. sense. That's uh, o- overpriced yeah, that's... lumber is a priority right now. <laughs> uh, goodness. Uh, well, that makes sense. Um, the new box set is uh, is a little bit of a contention among the. Uh, among the criterion aficionados I interact with on the internet, apparently there's some color correction that a not that uh, Wong Kar Wai was he did, but a lot of people think was not great. See what I uh, what I wanted because I have not seen all of these films. Like for example, today was the one we watched today recolor corrected. I don't know. I don't think so. Doesn't look like it. But I really have no idea. Yeah, and I don't know how you yeah. would know that. I don't. I, I mm, mm, questions. I don't know. Yeah, uh, you have an out of print DVD is how you know that. Well, exactly. <laughs> right, and that's the thing right. is that's like, one way. You know, I mean, but like we, at this point, yeah, I think, we watched it on Criterion Channel. Yeah, same right. Here. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I would like, you know, I haven't watched In the Mood for Love in a long time. Uh, 
So I don't know if I would even notice, but like, I mean, the color, the color choice in that movie is so like intense. Like, I can't imagine how he would color correct it any way other than to make it even more the color it already is. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, from what this seen, red I can be a little bit deeper. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like it's, it's what if this differently is? intense. Yeah. I think is really the way it is. But but yeah. Well, before we get too far into Wong Kar Wai and the movie, I do want to talk about our Patreon for a second. Patreon.com slash lost in criterion. Uh, if you want to support us, you can head over there for just a dollar a month, get access to a bonus episode. It's a non criterion film. Our supporters vote on what we're gonna watch. Uh, sometimes they suggest lists, sometimes they get uh, invited to be on the show if they suggest a list, uh, or invited to be on the show if I put together a list that insults their native country. Mm. Uh, I think we do. Jason was yep. on an episode recently where we watched Strange Brew uh, because I put together a list of Canadian films, but in my defense, and we talked about it there, in my defense, I had thought of better Canadian film lists and was thwarted at every turn of things that would be available for Pat to stream in Japan well, Let's be legally. clear here. Japan hates Canada. <laughs> that seems to be what it is. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, so th- it's I mean, okay. I mean, that's what occupation does. It really makes you love America for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Get yeah, your baseball. If uh, if Canadians had invented baseball, uh, the relationship would be yeah, completely different. Yeah, if sure. Canadians had invented baseball, no, no, it's if totally Japan loved it. basketball. Yeah. It's if Japan loved <laughs> basketball, they'd love Canada. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's a that's a dollar a month. Uh, it's always uh, four choices in a theme on that list, and then the fifth choice is Kazam, the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal uh, as a genie. It's a delight. They made us watch it a couple of times. Uh, no doubt, Jason we'll watch is a supporter. He's been on a couple of episodes over there as well. Not just the Strange Brew, but a, a really fun episode on uh, on Godzilla. Uh, uh, Goodness, I just lost the title. Which one we watched? It was uh, King Godzilla, Gadira. Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah: Giant Monsters All Out Attack. Yes, that's why I forgot it. Very, it's very compact, long. very um, compelling title. GMK. Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, yes. The only thing that will get Much you removed, apparently, from Redbubble. Yes, yes. In the whole yes, world, art. Our, our piece of art based on based on that one got us uh, got a takedown notice from Toho. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, speaking of that for, for a little extra, we like to, uh, we like to thank, uh, those supporters on air. So at $5 and above, we thank those people. And there's actually only one $5 supporter right now. And that's, uh, our good friend, Stephen Goldmeyer. Thank you so much, Stephen. But a little above that $10 and above. We thank those people on air and we send them a little piece of art that Pat makes a severed finger and, uh, no, not never, never something as conceptual as a separate figure. <laughs> not yet, not yet. We're not there yet. Not, yeah. yeah, I get that art printed up on a postcard. Right, so thank you. Note, mail that off. Uh, if you want to see those postcards, you can go to redbubble.com and search for uh, "Lost in Criterion" and see all of them, except for the aforementioned. Uh, I don't Toho put them up. Film. Yeah, there won't be the Toho one, and uh, and they're on a three month delay over there, so their supporters get them first. 
Uh, we do like to thank those people on air, as I said. So thank you to Chris Otto. Thank you to Michael McGrath, Patrick Yago, Adam Spickerman, and Jason Westhaver, who is joining us. Yes, thank Hello. you all. And, and if I can just say, because I'm your oldest patron, I've been backing you, you guys pretty much since the beginning. He's I've upgraded to a $10 old. tier for Pat's oh. art, and I have to say it's been money well spent. So I, I, for my I first time on the Mainline podcast, let me do a little pitch here and say that the work these guys do behind their paywall Despite a paywall being an evil sign of capitalism, which we should all be opposed to, it is really solid work. There are a lot more fun episodes. Not to say that the the main <laughs> some of them are nightmares, fun, but yeah. it, it's it's just a little more get... loose. You get some interesting things, and it's fun to be able to help pick a film out and have that conversation on the Patreon about what's going on. Even though we can never agree on what's going on, because there aren't <laughs> enough of us, so more of you join in and there save, Get more save us from the and, dreaded yeah. dice roll of Kazam. Yeah, yes. I, I, the Kazam dice roll. Really, it should just be if you guys tie this, we're watching Kazam. Deal with it. And that'll really force maybe force people into <laughs> they're being more decisive about this. Or we'll just watch Kazam a lot. Uh, That's the other option. Yeah, because right now it's basically a tontine where the last surviving film is Kazam. Right. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes. Oh, man. Sometimes I pick lists where no one votes for Kazam, and that makes me feel good, right? Right. uh, That's a good sign, really. It is. Yeah. But that is patreon.com slash lost in criterion if you want to support us. Jason, thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to say this, Jason. I'm not meaning to put you on blast, but... You have been our longest supporter, but you ha- you aren't the one who has given us the most money. I don't know if you want to ch- make any changes <laughs> to that. We're going to make this uh, a weird competition. <laughs> Obviously, see, I'm kidding. See, this <laughs> is what happens. You preach a strong socialist utopia mindset, <laughs> but as soon as you get someone who might be able to open the purse a little more, you're just yeah. on them with a the hard sell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're no, just no, lucky no. we're not trying to sell you uh, tote uh, bags right now. I, Until I, the revolution comes, we've, we've got to keep eating. So... Uh, well, it's the perfect example of the the presented leftist experience in America. Please make the world better by supporting my podcast. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Hey, there there are a lot of people doing really well for themselves with that. Yeah, pitch. No so uh, I will I will definitively say that I am in no way making the world a better place by doing this podcast. <laughs> of all the things so, I so could do with that. my time that might actually make the world a better place, this is not one of them. Um, <sighs> Clearly, we were making the world a better place for some people, though. That's true. I, I Other people, yeah, that's it. true. I, on a very, very personal one-by-one basis, we might be making the world a better place. Yeah. We're certainly making some people's commutes better, maybe. Um, <laughs> which is yeah. something. I, I, I'll just say this. I'm not giving you more money monthly on the Patreon, <laughs> because, again, kid in the house. But I'll tell no, you what. No, no. Next time in Col- I'm in Columbus, Adam, I'll take you out for that Brazilian steakhouse we talked about. There, there we go. go. Perfect. Yeah. Pat? When I finally get a chance to make it to Kyushu, Michelin star sushi. Um, oh, set? well, actually, there's there's several. I don't know about that, but there are several Michelin star restaurants in my area that I could take you to. Well, actually, to be oh, fair, perfect. there's one of them is Michelin star. One of them is not Michelin star, but is chef. The chef is a is used to run a Michelin star restaurant and then wanted to come home. And that restaurant doesn't have Michelin star. But like, I mean, come on. Like it's very, very. It just very, means very someone good. hasn't been there from the guidebook. Yeah, basically. Right. And and right, and right. I don't. The guidebook getting down to you know the far end of Western Kyushu is 
uh, is not a thing that happens maybe very much, I think. Well, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised, actually. I think Japan has more Michelin stars than any other country on the planet. Yep, they do. Yep. And, uh, well, there was there's a there's an old story this, about the, the Tokyo getting very angry when, like, I guess a long time, quite a while ago, like, they didn't get any or something. This is way back before the sort of, like, culinary revolution in Tokyo and, like, quote-unquote culinary revolution in Tokyo and getting mad and being like, oh, no, we're going to put an end to that. And then just now just they're like, oh, we got fewer than New York. This is bullshit. And then, like, just deciding to try to dominate the thing. But, uh, yeah, no, it's, you, I got some good restaurants I can take you to. Absolutely. So you just find your way have here. Have you actually it's, looked at the price for those Michelin star restaurants? I, are, we, are we talking, like, some on N or? Um, the one in my na- like, the one that's, like, literally a stone's throw away from here um, is, I think it's $100 a head for a, like, for just their general, like, basic, like, omakase course, like, their basic recommended course. Yeah. And then they have, like, a more sophisticated one that also comes with paired wine that's, like, $300 or something like that, I think. It's, like, a special yeah, occasion that, restaurant. It's not, like, a go-all-the-time restaurant, but... For a, for a Michelin-rated tasting menu, that's actually not bad at yeah, all. Yeah, no, well, so exactly. That, that's and disturbingly like, and the one, cheap. And the $100 yeah. one is very reasonable. Like, it's a, like... It's not, again, it's not every all-the-time thing, but, like, oh, we're going to have a birthday? Yeah, we can go there. That's fine. We can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah now, are you sure... Are you sure that Japan doesn't have more Michelin-rated restaurants because of France's weird obsession with Japan? I have no doubt that that plays a part of it. I am sure that weird Orientalism probably plays a part in it. Absolutely. Uh, The things that go into this sort of stuff can be very upsetting (laughs) to think about. Uh, Well, in any case, Jason, thank you for that offer. That is wonderful. And uh, someday when when travel between countries and uh, cities seems less dangerous... Well, I'll, well, I'll also be honest possible. with you. I have way more motivation to go to Japan when this is all over than hey, I Columbus. do to go to Columbus. <laughs> hey, me too. Shocking. Me Shocking. too. I was, I was planning a trip when, uh, when all of this started. So yeah. I am uh, uh, chomping at the bit to get to Japan too. This week we are talking about Chungking Express, the 1994 film directed by Wong Kar Wai. Uh, this is a interestingly shot film Mm -hmm. uh he had about 20 days to do it uh he took a break he would i think he was on a regular series that was a historical uh action show um if i remember correctly if i'm interpreting that correctly um and made this he was writing scenes writing dialogue the morning of shooting uh (laughs) recording by the seat of their pants uh changing as locations dried up the original ending of this movie was the two main characters of the second half leaving together but they couldn't get permission to film at the airport oh really so i I think they they, they actually couldn't get permission to film at the airport or the subway at any point so all of those shots are illicitly recorded uh, at least according to the criterion commentary yeah makes sense i mean yeah that makes a lot of sense um, frankly, well, like, and you look, nothing happens on those scenes, right? It's, it's right. like she leads a, a caravan of Indian men, but you don't actually see her talk at the counter. It just cuts right. as she walks up and then cuts back as she walks away. Right. 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 Yeah. So it's uh, clandestine. 
Well, um, I mean, interesting. Y- frankly speaking, like there's a world where you could basically make this this movie into a, and they kind of already do make it into essentially a drawing room film anyway. Like it, you know, it's so much of the action takes place in one location anyway, and really only expands mm-hmm. to two at most. That like, you know, did they need other locations? Not not very much. Not really. Um, so right. Yeah, it's. It's interestingly done if it's... I mean, I could imagine most of this would have been pretty easily done guerrilla filmmaking outside of the apartments and uh, the takeaway. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah I mean, you yeah, would need all the access stuff in the to mall. those two locations for sure, but then after that, you just wouldn't need anything else, really. Uh, but yeah, it is It is two stories, both about a lovelorn police officer Uh Intertwined a little bit. Police officers who never do any police work. Well, Which is no, the exactly first one like that, how I like work. them. <laughs> it's exactly yes. how they're meant to be. Exactly. Everybody has their downtime. Yeah. <laughs> and a police officers who uh, who do not find lasting love until they stop being police officers. So there's that too. Uh, but uh, but yeah, two intertwined stories. Originally meant to be three intertwined. Uh, well, not even intertwined. Two sort of. Uh, butted up against each other's stories because the only the only crossover is the restaurant, right? Um, and then you know a couple characters from the second half do show up in the first half in the background, like we see uh, Faye buying the Garfield uh, while we're following the woman in the blonde wig. Uh, we see the stewardess leaving the airport while. The woman in blonde wig is at the airport. Um, I feel like there was one other, but I'm not thinking of it right now. Yeah, so there, there's oh. three three shots that sync. You see the stewardess at the airport in the interleave shot between the counters. You yeah. see Faye buying the Garfield at what should be the wrong time chronologically, because that's on like the 30th before the second story begins. Right, right, right. Um, and you see a shot of Officer 633 just sort of standing on an elevated like gangway or yes. something like that. Yes, yes, that is the other one. Um, maybe Faye just collects the collects. Yeah, it's possible this is a daily maybe. thing for her. Like, well, <laughs> she, she is one of the most manic pixie of manic pixie dream yes. girls. Yeah, <laughs> she is. She is, she is really a, a, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> the I, most I, I like to believe that it's possible to 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 elevate a, an art form so much that you transcend it, and I think this might be yes. be one of those cases yes, where, like, at some point you you stop being Manic Pixie Dream World because you're now cleaning a dude's apartment and like making weird <laughs> subtle modifications to it over time that he won't notice. Like, I mean. Yeah. At some point, you transcend it out of just like whatever's happening in Garden State, right? Like, like you've right. You've, you've reached some new like super level where you're like, I of flooded crime. your apartment one day. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. You've you've introduced B and E to the situation, and uh, and to be fair, right, right uh, now it's fifty percent manipulation of your happen. target. What? Say that again. Usually, usually the manic pixie dream girls are not manipulating their uh, their male counterparts <laughs> right, right, right. into uh, into or out of relationships. More, it's about uh, you know they've got the certainly they've got the disillusioned, uh, depressed man 
of the Manic Pixie so, Dream Girl relationship. But so it's interesting you say about manipulating into a relationship because I, I rewatched this with my wife last night and we had a long conversation about Faye and what Faye's doing that sort yeah. of ended with this is creepy. This oh, is wrong. Creepy. This is something that should not be seen as cool. But in the context of the film, it just comes across as an innocent beauty. Like, it's... It just... Right, right. It, it's not so much about her manipulating him into a relationship as it is just trying to reset his life a little bit. Right. Now, that resetting Listen. his life in- includes roofing him with some sleeping pills, but <laughs> right. but not for a malicious purpose. Like, it's to help <laughs> him sleep because he's not sleeping well. So it's very innocent, beautiful, dreamlike... Just right. awful gaslighting, manipulative. Right. Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah, it it is like absolutely one hundred percent. Everything is wrong, uh, and like the way and and I don't know that we're not supposed to like. I don't believe that we're supposed to recognize it as not being insane, right? Like we're 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 not supposed to look at it and say like, this is this is good. This is what I want in my life. I want. <laughs> I don't think so, but uh, you know. I don't think it's something we're supposed to look at as being bad. I don't necessarily know that it's something we're supposed to look at as being good either. Right. If you look at the the way it's presented and the scenes that lead up to it, there's talk about sleepwalking and daydreaming. And I think it's just supposed to be this sort of ethereal thing that you oh, yeah. experience as, as going on with like fully detached from the realm of reality. Which is the only thing that makes this beautiful and not terrifying. Right. Well, absolutely. There is there is also the fact that, you know, in, in plenty of much more straightforward romantic comedies, uh, the protagonists do things that would be cause to <laughs> at least get some therapy. Uh, right. Yeah. You know. Standing in the rain outside someone's house with a boombox in the middle of the night is not a uh, is not healthy behavior either. Um, right. But there's also there's also the point where all of this happens. It's Faye's going through stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. She changes before they actually get together in a very similar way to how he changes. Right. And it's it's about greater stability in themselves <clears throat> before they come together as a couple right it, it's also really unclear how much he actually knows is going on because right like her, she gets caught with the c the cd he puts it yes. on and he says you know this was something my my ex used to listen to all the time but Faye's voiceover tells us that it's her cd that she left here and the way he talks to his which we we still got to get into how he talks to his apartment but just the the way he reacts to everything it's almost like he's in a stupor, and I can't quite tell if he knows what's going on and he is consciously okay with it, or he's just so detached in his grief over the loss of the relationship that it's just washing over him, and he's not right. aware. Right. Well, and that's right. the thing, right? Is... You would think. Th- Go ahead. You would think the Garfield polar bear thing would be something he could not mentally well, rectify. Right. But the way he actually interacts with the Garfield, it seems like he is mentally rectifying it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting well, that... Right, but or is he yeah. playing a game with himself, right? Like, 
Like, for example, when he comes back that one time and he, like, starts, like, hunting around the house and, like, he says things like, oh, you know, uh, you know, you usually pop out of here after three. Like, it's like after a count to three or whatever. It it does feel like she's she talks. She has the narration in that scene and says, like, oh, you know, you're so, like, so stupid. I forget what she says exactly, but something like you're so stupid. You don't even notice me here. But, like, you also get the impression that, like, maybe <laughs> that thing where it's, like, a willful blindness where it's, like, it's just way easier for me not to engage with this. Like, right. like it is. Like, <laughs> this very I, weird thing that's happening. Right. I don't want to engage with this because I don't actually want to know why suddenly, like, for example, like, everything seems to be better now. Like, in a little bit of way. It's like, uh, it's like. If you were if you were actually visited by actual physical pixies or something or like elves <laughs> that cleaned your apartment, right. like would you definitely want to engage with those things to find out what their deal is, or it's more like, would I just like be like, no, this is fine. We're just gonna we're just gonna ignore this. We're just gonna keep moving. The happy indifference, right? Yeah, right, exactly. Right. I think we, we talked, talked about, about this a couple this. weeks ago, actually, when we talked about like last if, week. Actually. Yeah, we, like. If a if twenty, well, I forget what the I forget what the movie had happened. It was like if this much money. Last week up in it was pocket. the spy who came in from the cold. Right. It was the spy who came in from the cold, and the 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 thing was that uh, uh, the mortgage, Nan, yeah. the uh, the love interest in that, had her lease bought out and wasn't being charged rent anymore, and had the lease sent to her, and she never questioned it. She thought it was just some charity. Well, thing. she she did question and it, it, and they told her it was a charety. And she's like, nope, right, I'm not going right, to ask right, any right. more questions about this because right, digging will right, only yeah. make this weirder and worse, and it's fine. Yeah. And like, you know, yeah, and it you turns out it was out. the UK government in a in a weird clandestine spy thing, right? But but yes, it's just hard to say what a, uh, a real um, human but, being would do in a situation that is clearly a weird fantastical situation. It, you know, like you can't really say what you would do if like suddenly your apartment was like clean all the time. You'd be like. Who knows what you would do? I don't know. Call the police. Right. Hello, police. My clean. My apartment's clean now. <laughs> oh, wait. I am the police. That's a. <laughs> I I think one of the most interesting scenes, and it is hands down one of my favorite. It leads to one of my favorite lines in the entire movie, uh, that I think conveys to us a little bit how he's processing everything, is when he's going through the apartment, and you know. The Garfield's different. He comments how his soap has uh, really let itself go because it's gone from a little shiv to a, a giant puck. And then he gets to the right. towel and he starts talking about how the towel is different, how it's looking better on the outside. But then he hangs it up and it drips water and he has this wonderful little reflective moment on how the towel is still true to itself. It's a very right. emotional towel. Right, right, right. And I, I think that can convey somewhat as well how he's experiencing this, where things are changing around him, but the truth underneath, the the, the sadness, the the stuff that needs to change is sort of still there. It's yeah. just beautiful, beautiful, it really is beautiful reflection on on pain and on change and on your perception of reality and, and how all those things interact. Right. Yeah, on absolutely. Grief. Uh, and yeah, and like, like you said, you know, he's still, he's seeing these changes, but still undergirding all of that is, is his depressed emotional state. Yeah. And it's not until Faye's gone 
and we get the time skippage uh and he's completely changed his life right he's he's taken control of his destiny in a very literal way um bought the restaurant space renovating the restaurant space and yeah he's he's holding on to Faye at that point right he's got the the little hand-drawn boarding pass that she made um and he went back for it but it's not it's sort of something he's held on to but not a moment of he's not building his life around her coming back right right yeah absolutely um Though, I mean, there is an argument to be made that he did buy the restaurant she works at. So. Well, and, <laughs> but. but that could be equally, like, that's that one's hard to, to, to sort of, like, one way, like decide one way or the other. Because he's also, in that way, like, he's found that that restaurant has become a weird point of stability in his life that, like, he's decided to sort of carry forward and something, make it into something else, right? Like, I mean, he's not keeping it right. a weird snack bar that employs... Like a random host of people at random times, and and yeah. seems to be only making uh like chef salads and uh, fish and chips. Like I mean, he's turning it into a restaurant, restaurant, right? So that's like a yeah, it's a, it's a you know it is, but it's you know and pizza, Pat. Yeah. We never actually see the pizza, but they do sell pizza. Yeah, I don't believe it exists, and they apparently sell kebabs <laughs> because there's one just on a spit in the background half the time. Yeah. Just but no one ever orders it. <laughs> yes. Well, so I'm not sure what. Let's the also not forget. The owner is a shrewd businessman. First, he sells him fish and chips. Then he sells him the whole restaurant. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's a good line too. <laughs> I really love that. Uh, I also yeah. like the fact that he's um, forced to repeat it like three times, thanks to the music, which I think is a lovely touch. That like anytime <laughs> well, somebody has to tell it's a great joke reversal like this, of his yeah. first meeting with Faye. Absolutely, yes, it's yes. wonderful, and that's that's one beautiful aspect of this film are the the mirrors and the reversals of of uh, different aspects. Um, also, uh, on a on a side note to the loud music, uh, I make a I make a habit when we watch a uh, non English film to look at the Wikipedia page for the movie in its native country. Yeah, and in in clicking through through the Chinese Wikipedia for this film, uh, I learned that at least through Google Translates, uh, I assume that there is a broader definition to all of the words involved but uh chinese language wikipedia for the uh mamas and the papas translates as mom and dad choir yeah no it's not uh, that checks out which is really good i'm sure it's i'm sure that the word translated choir also means band or or any number of musical group interpretations but mom and dad choir is a it's a good name that's yeah. beautiful yeah which, which, by the way, I hope anyone who hasn't seen this who's looking to watch it really likes California Dreamin'. <laughs> it's in there a lot. Six and, times. Yeah. And Faye Wong's own cover of The Cranberry's Dreams, which yes. is it was is a very Beautiful. enjoyable part of the movie in and of itself, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've, we've, we've focused entirely on the second half of the movie, uh, which is good because it's it's phenomenal that's in but we... keeping with the movie itself i think <laughs> that no, might I, be fair not, that that, not be to fair. like down like to downplay the first the first one but like it's clear that the movie itself seems to focus much more heavily on that second story yeah. than the first story like there seems just to be more well, emotional and time investment in the first second story than the first story in my opinion it's so it's interesting career-wise that Wong Kar Wai makes this movie that starts off as uh 
a crime movie and then as a love movie and then his really beautiful love stories are are sort of what i know him for right moving forward right yeah um but presumably he was making crime movies and still made crime movies you know uh, i don't know i don't know about that aspect of his career actually so um, I, I think it, it's interesting you say that, you know, the focus is on the second half because um, you're right. The first half obviously is shorter. It rushes through. It's way more of a ship's passing in the night romance right. than the right. uh, the second half is. But there's some, some interesting reasons for that and some reasons that I think help strengthen the second half. Um, if you took a look at any of the extra features, there's one that talks about narrative symmetry between the two halves of the film. Mm-hmm. And when you really start to look at it, you're seeing two men in a similar situation. They're both police officers. They've both just been dumped by the woman that they love. And you're tracking how they react to that loss. And if you start to look at it, the world around them is completely different. You know, the first story is very fast paced. And that comes across with the step printed slow motion and the freneticism. The second half is, is much slower, more focused and reflective. But the paths they actually go on aren't all that different. They both sort of regress a little bit to a childish-like state. In the first part, you know, he's living off canned food. He's talking to his dog. Right. He's given himself this weird arbitrary timeline. He, right. He's calling old girlfriends he's reminiscing and jogging he's not actually facing his pain he's just sort of putting it off and then the second half it's a different approach you know he's talking to his apartment but it's still that simple just regression to being an emotional human just experiencing things and not wanting to face the pain and not wanting to start over fresh and it it layers out with a lot of actions that they make throughout the film and then where their arcs follow a similar path of sort of getting over and changing a little bit in one case due to <laughs> due to eating a bunch of expired pineapple in the other right. case due to, due to phase impact the worlds around them are just very different they progress differently phase whole story is very intimate and focused and built on improving his life and comes across as romantic but like I said earlier, in kind of a weird ethereal way. Whereas for the first story, it's just, I got drunk with a woman for the night, but that helped me get over everything. Right. Right. And, and there is a lot of parallel there. I think also though, like we also see that like there, for whatever reason, these two characters, uh, and like, you know, normally human beings are like this, but they have very different sort of, emotional sort of competencies and and things like that like our first character is able to essentially rectify himself by doing this kind of wild set of sort of like hastily constructed rituals over the course of a fairly short period of time that culminates in like a scene that i do very much enjoy which is him just sitting in that uh hotel room just eating gobs and gobs of uh of uh um which are all, uh, chef salads. Yeah, chef yeah. salads and french fries and stuff while she just sleeps and he watches yeah. old movies. Like, somehow that is all very cathartic for that character. Um, whereas our second character ha- isn't able to find any sort of way to sort of build himself back up in, in, in a w- without Faye's help, he 
there's it's hard to say. I mean, obviously, eventually he probably would reach some sort of new uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, new sort of um, fundamental stable state. But it's hard to say when and how that would happen without Faye in the second story. Whereas this first story, like, honestly, it's hard to say whether or not he would just be able to accomplish that with or without our lead female character in that in that first story because frankly like i mean that pineapple was going to do its job one way or the other and and then he was going to probably it's it's easy to believe that he could just end up sitting in his in some room eating oodles of food and still come out the other side i think her being there helps in the sense that like instead of it being a one-night stand it turns into this other thing is probably a, a, an important part of that emotional journey for him. But, uh, you know, it, 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 it they, they just, they just, they do diverge in the sense that like one of them accomplishes everything, goes through the entire sort of process very quickly. Whereas the second one, he takes quite a long time to, to get there. And well, he doesn't go through the entire process though. Right. Cause he doesn't, he doesn't get, back on his feet he's no, not in no. a new relationship at the end of it right right well i mean it depends um, like how you want to view that he's not we don't... really necessarily comfortably alone at the end of it either like um what what that well and that's sort of the issue i have with that first story is that the second story is is nearly a full arc whereas the first story seems almost abruptly stopped uh we we get to this point where like he seems to be feel like feeling better because she calls uh and leaves him a happy birthday message and then that's that's the end of it right like that's just where it stops and we yeah. we're forced to assume one trajectory or the other right as an audience like it's either going to go back it's on its way down or it's on its way up kind of thing is where we're kind of left right but she's also in a position where she kind of has to disappear at this point too right Right, but uh, he doesn't. She did seem... just murder a bunch of people. Right, so. but that's the other part of it is that he doesn't. His his response the first the first movie or the first story, his response doesn't seem to be so much based on who she is as just her position as a woman in his life, saying like he is in some way valued. Right, like yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. Like he gets that birthday message, and that seems to be all he actually needs or wants from her. Like, mm-hmm. he kind of has this, like, oh, somebody sent me a happy birthday message. Like, I feel, like, you know, that's, like, it's seen as a positive. And I don't think he's necessarily, like, we don't know, but I don't know that he's necessarily going to go, like, I've got to hunt this blonde woman down, whatever it takes. Like, right, and then right, he becomes right. some sort of manic pixie dream guy chasing this wanted woman across Hong Kong. I don't know. <laughs> so I, I don't okay. really think that's the point of it, because if you look at how their relationship is, I, I mean, aside from the fact that he thought he was going to go back to the hotel for more when she actually just wanted to sleep, right? It, everything is still very innocent. Like, right. he spends that time in the hotel watching old movies, eating chef salads, and the last thing he does is just takes off her shoes, washes them clean, and leaves them so that she's in a good place. I don't think there's any lust or drive for him to specifically be with this woman. I think it's right. just this was an intimate moment that he needed to help reset things. Right, yeah. To, right. to sort of give him perspective on his life and where he is going forward. And if you look, even with the, the second half, with the story with Faye, it's also very much portrayed 
as an innocent romance coming together. I mean, neither of these characters actually hook up with the woman that they're engaged with. Both of them end up being left by her at the end. Now, we don't really see what happens with Officer 223 because he ends with the transition to the second story. But I think with the way the symmetry exists between the first story and the second story, and we see how Officer 633 is doing better at the end of that, that it implies he's kind of getting on with his life in the same way. Yeah. Well, that and that, yeah. that's definitely true. I mean, like, we, we know that, uh, like, in the second story, he's moving on because, you know, he's doing things like buying a restaurant, he's no longer a police officer, all these different things that are, like, fundamental changes to his life. And Faye's doing that as well. Uh, who knows what happens between them later on because, like, they do seem to have an actual emotional connection uh, at the end there. Uh, I mean, you know, it's yeah. like... The, the like the cl- the stories clearly have symmetry, I, but I think it's worth noting that they also are trying to sort of say different things about sort of the life cycle of a right, person right, going right. through a breakup, yeah. um, and 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 one of them is a much is much clearly a much more like radically intense short period of time thing versus a sort of long drawn out uh, sort of mourning period for that relationship. Yeah, um, yeah it's to compare and contrast. Right. Exactly. Right. 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 So the essay that accompanies the Criterion release is written by Amy Talbin, and uh, and it's it's pretty sprawling. It's actually uh, one of the better essays, I think, one of the better film essays I've I've read uh, with the Criterion stuff for a while. But uh, she makes a lot of comparisons to uh, masculine feminine um, as young people dealing with love, um, but but she segues that into something very interesting of positioning this as uh as existing just prior to the Hong Kong handoff to right. to the U- to Britain uh returning Hong Kong uh governorship to China. And and from that she talks about the metaphor of the expiration dates mm. of um I don't think she explicitly says the metaphor of the birthday that is at the end of those uh uh, expiration dates and the new birthday that is the woman in the blonde wigs experience with the May 1st expiration date as well um, because it is a, a day where she faced death and did not right right um, and it's interesting that so much of uh, so much of the first story is consumption based you know he's he's hoarding that pineapple and then consuming it at all the day before the expiration date, which is, I think, a different, an interesting metaphor for, for Hong Kong going back to to Chinese rule and trepidation of what that would mean economically and socially. Um, but then the second one is the consumption is still there in different ways, right? His phase buying him new things to replace the old things and providing those new things out of nowhere. Um, and they're, they're a lot like the things he bought himself, but all a little bit better. Um, <laughs> but there's also in internationalism to the second part, right? She's, she's the flight attendant wanting to go to California and the California dreaming is obviously a heavy metaphor <laughs> Um, right. As you said, the song's in there six times. Um, 
so it's you know and all of that story takes place after may 1st right so so it's a different take on it's a hope for the future instead of a fear of the future and i think that's that's certainly true for the relationships period uh but is also Tawin brings up an interesting framing to view it as uh, as political hope too, right? So I don't know. It's just a, it's an interesting way to look at it. It's definitely something that has to be considered, even if it's not intentional in yeah. uh, Wong Kar Wai's mind or in any of the actors. Because you're right, this was '94. This was three years before transition took place. Right, and it's a very complicated time for the people of Hong Kong. Um, yeah. Curious and, side note to that, uh, just real quick. Uh, I was doing some research on the actors as part of this because I always like to take a look at them. And mm-hmm. um, Tony Lung, who's uh, the cop in the second one, just fantastic actor on his own. Oh, yeah. Actually holds uh, British National Overseas or BNO nationality, which I'm curious just in general how stuff like that might have affected uh, him and his performance during these sorts of of eras because that was a UK policy. It's just an interesting UK policy that showed we're going to hand over Hong Kong to China. We will give the people of Hong Kong, if they want to apply for it, the rights to hold a British nationality, but not the rights of abode or the right to work in the UK. Right. Because, you know, they had a firm policy as decolonization went on of not letting in the non-whites. Right. Which, it's just one little thing that sort of highlights how Hong Kong was in those days. The uncertainty of the future. Because everyone in 83 had already lost their British citizenship before the 10-year deal was put in place. Because they changed the citizenship uh, from everyone was a common uh, citizen of the UK and the colonies to being uh, British dependents or, or something like that. And as part of the joint agreement with China, they created this British overseas citizenship. So basically for the whole period of, of transition, if you were an ethnically Chinese Hong Konger, you had to be very careful and plan your ways out because you didn't have British citizenship anymore, so you couldn't just go to the UK. You're going to be trepidatious about China taking over because... It's going to be a very different experience. I think a lot of these people just ended up feeling kind of trapped and uncertain about the future and unsure if there was going to be a bright day or if it was just going to be a be a harsh end. And that kind of fits with that, that parallel that you described. Right, right. This, you know, it's a, it's a breakup looming over it. Um, but it's not necessarily a bad bad for you breakup right it is not it is not necessarily a thing that will put you worse off um and in fact it is a breakup that needed to happen yeah but is the next relationship going to be better you know it's you know it's very it's Talbot brings up a very interesting metaphor to that and and again you know it's <clears throat> It's not something I would have stumbled upon on my own. So full credit right, to Talbin to get me, yeah. getting yeah, me to I, think of in that in that manner. Yeah, I, I um, hadn't thought of that at all, but that is absolutely brilliant because yeah. 
mean, that whole period transition is basically you've been dumped by the UK. <laughs> right. And you're not sure what's going to happen, mm-hmm. but there's definitely a new relationship in your future. Right, right. Well, and that, that, that brings up the, the interesting point about, like, if you extend that metaphor outright, you end up with Faye, who is who is fundamentally a sort of imposed relationship, right? Like, you're not you're not actively choosing this relationship as much as Faye is just entering your life kind of of her own accord, right? And that's kind of that extends that metaphor of, of you know... Yeah. The, you know, Hong Kong's relationship with China makes... is not one that necessarily Hong Kong is choosing to have, right? Like, it is... And, you know, that we see as it plays out further into the future, but regardless, yeah. like many of them may feel at that time, like, you know, many people might feel like, well, we're not actively being given a choice in this scenario anyway. Yeah. Uh, right. If we extend that metaphor, perhaps beyond what Tobin even does in her essay and Faye represents China bettering his life, but not, not bettering his life with consent. Right. Exactly. Um, That's a really still, thing to think about. Yeah. And still in the end, they need to spend some time apart before before things can work out in the future. Um, which is interesting to, you know, the sort of space that Hong Kong has been in since, since uh, what, 97, 99, whenever the... Whenever the Nine, 97 was the handover, was. but also, yeah. yeah, the continued stripping of rights from the special administrative region really right, right, does... Right match phase uh impositions on him not that <laughs> right, that would have right. ever been intended but it's a fascinating thing could it, yeah it is very fascinating possibly like, have been intended ma- right making that seem even more prescient <laughs> right like it's it's yeah. pretty wild yeah um <laughs> right right to the end of of what are you doing in my apartment yeah right. um, <laughs> but yeah um obviously the uh the extended metaphor of that to to the final scenes either falls apart or says some very interesting things about Wong Kar Wai's politics and prescience. But um, I think it's probably it safe still... to say that 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 like we can we we can we can safely assume that we're we're taking the metaphor for too far of our of our right, own free right, will at this right. point. Uh, but like right. you know, it is it is fun to think about how well it tracks for quite a bit of time if you think about it, and that's uh, kind of terrifying. That that's kind of like <laughs> one of those. Every so often, you see one of those things, like one of those Twitter meme type things, where it's like, "Oh, this show predicted this thing was going to happen," and you know, thirty years ago, it's like, well, you know, things happen. Sometimes right? you guess really well. Yeah, or sometimes class. you just accidentally make the thing, right? And it just, you know, if enough <laughs> enough if enough film is shot, right, eventually those monkeys are gonna type <laughs> Shakespeare, right? Um not, not you know, not the which has a, a negative implication that like somehow Wong Kar Wai doesn't know what he's doing. That's which is not what I'm going for, but you know what I mean. Like which you're gonna get it false, right occasionally so. if you just keep predicting things as a, as an industry, right? Right. Right. Um, right. And as as yeah. I feel like we've been clear. I don't know that is even trying to predict anything. Wong Kar Wai himself was trying to predict yeah, anything. No, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Even even if it's legitimately true that this is not just a story about young people, but also a story about those young people's trepidation of political future and not just of relationship future, uh, the uh, the further implications of the uh, 
fey relationship do not necessarily hold to that metaphor. Right, right, right. So, but yeah, comparing it to masculine feminine is interesting because you know masculine feminine is the the Goddard movie that's you know, about the children of Marx and Coca Cola. I think is how he described it. Um, and again, that movie also, as Tobin points out, but that movie also stars a female pop star, right? And Faye, Faye is a, a, a pop star in her real life, um, not just an actress. Uh, there, uh, I feel like in Mask and Feminine, I don't remember Mask yeah, and Feminine. Yeah, I was looking well, it up because I have not watched, we have not watched that in I feel like so in Mask and Feminine, the, uh, the actress who is played by the pop star is actually a pop star in the, in the film as well which is uh, obviously different here, but, um, but yeah, (laughs) not that she doesn't musically perform in this movie, Uh, but it is lip syncing to her own song is, is certainly something that still happens. Um, But yeah, Uh, yeah, the music, (laughs) it's just, I I can't, it is, California dreaming is inescapable in the film. So, so talking about the music is inescapable. Uh, But uh, but it's just really fun the way it's. No, I I re- I'm a big fan of the way the music works in this movie, just in general terms, just because it it I don't know I don't encounter I don't recall encountering very often films that just really essentially pick like two pop songs and just fucking run with it. I guess like three basically. Right. It's a really interesting right. thing to do because it works. I mean, the movie is 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 made better by that that decision making uh for sure it's just really wild to think like yeah we listen to basically three songs i think it's four actually i think the the i i don't know if they have it on the 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 english the soundtrack i don't the let's see here um i don't know what you're going for or i'd help what i don't know what you're going for no i mean i was trying exactly how many songs are actually in the movie it's not very many uh, no, no. I think it's like four, maybe five. Yeah, I was trying to count it because, like, the the Japanese Wikipedia page, which I was looking at, uh, because of one of the actors is has like a list of all the songs. <laughs> it's like, yep, here you go. Here's the songs yeah. in the movie, all four of them or whatever. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious, since you said you were looking at the the Japanese Wikipedia because of one of the actors, that's. Obviously, Takeshi Kaneshiro, you were yeah. looking at. Yeah, I was just curious um, what the who yeah, is basically is. not Japanese. No, he's not. I mean, his father's from Okinawa, but like, he yeah, was raised it, in Taiwan. But like, but I, like, he's he's pretty much as full Chinese as you can get, except for the fact that he did learn to speak Japanese. And I mean, he's got the ethnic heritage there, but in terms of his life growing up, he's he's Taiwanese. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's just a it's an interesting thing to to I thought I would investigate because, you know, they don't you know, that's not mm-hmm. made clear per se in any form other than just sort of investigating and seeing what uh what the uh you know, Wikipedia has to say about him and things like that. Um it it is it was a, sort of more of an interest in see like what what Japanese Wikipedia would, if anything, have to say. It doesn't have anything to say of any value, but <laughs> <laughs> like it was that still is, just me being curious. on this topic. That is not a general statement about Japanese. Wikipedia. <laughs> no, no, that is... <laughs> uh, that's true. Uh, although I, Japanese Wikipedia can get very weird sometimes, in my opinion, it has a it has a it has a love for being just a codice of lists of things <laughs> and nothing else. 
uh, is my experience with Jack- Japanese Wikipedia. Uh, happens, whereas the American Wikipedia tends language to be Wikipedia here too. Uh, well, but like American Wikipedia tends to be like the the showcase for people who like to write things a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like really long winded descriptions of plots that are only that only hew semi close to the actual things that happened in the movie. Uh, whereas Japanese one tends to be much more uh, just generally compact. But I I wanted to go investigate and see because I don't really know anything about him as an actor. Uh, so I was like, oh, I wonder if they have anything to say. And yeah, I, I mean. The answer is no, because he is he is mostly just a Chinese actor. Although I I'm curious because I wonder he does seem to get pulled into ad placements for Japanese companies fairly often, according to his Wikipedia page, which I think is kind of fascinating. Um, well, and he also uh, he also plays uh, gives his visual appearance to and voices the lead character in the Onimusha series. Right, yeah. See that—that's where it gets interesting because, like, he is not—he is almost entirely works in and around Chinese media, but like, just I mean, he was apparently a—he was apparently a spokesman for NTD Docomo and Shiseido and all these other Japanese, like, very famous Japanese brands. It's just really fascinating. Yeah, I know. those are very big brands. Yeah, no, I, they've got his list. They—he apparently like. Mitsubishi, Gallant, he was their spokesman, NTD Docomo, Vio for Sony. Like, it's just a long list of things that he's been a spokesperson for, which are almost entirely Japanese brands. And I don't know if that tells you more about him or tells you more of throughout the last 50, you know, the last six, what, 70 years, Japan, Japanese brands place in the greater Asian area in terms of just sort of like what brands sort of dominate uh in different categories in in the sort of greater asian area uh in the last you know since he was alive which is you know since the 70s so hard to say who knows (laughs) so quentin tarantino loved this movie so much that he signed a deal with (laughs) merrimax to start his own releasing company just Uh to get this movie put out in the u.s okay Uh, I'm that's sorry to a, bring up that's Quentin a, Tarantino. That's an interesting uh, thing to hear said out loud. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Look, it can't so always be Martin Scorsese who's doing this. It can't always be Scorsese. Yeah, it's got to be somebody Quentin else. Yeah, but Tarantino's a weird... It's like Quentin Tarantino's a wild choice to hear said out loud. Not that like Quentin Tarantino's not a movie lover or something like that. I would never say that he's not. But... It is, this is not based on, I guess, sort of maybe aesthetically sometimes, but this is not what I imagine when I think of, like, the sort of film that Quentin Tarantino would, like, spearhead getting released in the United States. I guess it's just like, well, this is just an amazing movie. People have to watch it. I don't know. So, yeah. I actually found on YouTube a thing of Quentin Tarantino talking about this film, and based on how it's shot, it looks like it was a DVD feature that was shot to be, like, the lead-in and then the the sort of post-fix to viewing the movie itself. And he actually okay. talks that he's a big fan of romance movies. Yeah. Loves romance yeah, movies. And loved Wong Kar Wai. From, uh, his first Wong Kar Wai film he saw was The Days of Being Wild, which is sort of the spiritual start to the trilogy that involves Days of Being Wild in the mood for love in 2046. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
made a point being such a big fan of that film when he had a chance on the festival circuit to see Chungking Express to to make the time to go see it and just utterly fell in love with the film as a beautiful piece of romantic art. Which is not right. what you'd expect from a guy known for excessive violence, fans, a fandom of Sergio Leone, and trying to, you know, basically get away with as much shit as he possibly can. Right, right, right. But he's also, you know, a fan of the French New Wave, to bring back that masculine feminine connection that Tobin brings up, that, you know, this is, this is a movie that's dealing similarly, and in perhaps a similar situation to, to Goddard, moving from making those uh, American gangster-influenced films to more thoughtful... Right. I, so, I mean... Really, stuff, but where I my where my mind goes when I hear that about Quentin Tarantino, I I kind of both I trepidatiously think to myself, maybe he should try making one of these other kinds of films that he likes, and not the thing that he always makes. <laughs> like a lot know, of trepidation there. Yeah, there is a lot um, of trepidation in my heart about it, but at the same time, like maybe you know, man, you like romance films, like I maybe think, make a straight one. It's just that I think. You know. I think one of the surprising things you might be hitting with Quentin Tarantino's involvement here is it might be the first time you've experienced Quentin Tarantino where he seems to be acting selflessly. That might be uh, part of it, yes. That is, that is also true. That is also a part of it where he's not uh, doing something that is purely for his own his own gain. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he is releasing it for money. So, Well, certainly. Certainly he is, he is profiting from this endeavor, I'm sure. But... Um, <laughs> Um, so it's it's interesting you mentioned Godard. Did you actually listen to any of the commentary for the film? I did not. Criterion Channel does not have any of that. Well, I think it yes, does. Yes, it does. Does it? I, I, I listened to it on there. So it, yeah, it it. How come there I didn't see it? I didn't see it at all. I don't know why you didn't. See it. Criterion Channel's functionality. Food not good. Is yeah. Well, Criterion Channel's functionality might be an issue here because if you search for a movie, there is always the first thing that responds. You click on it, it plays the movie, and it usually puts all the extra stuff at the bottom. Yeah, the second title you click on it, it takes you to a sub page for the movie that has the movie and then all of the all of the stuff with it. Um, Yeah, because the collections are separate from the films themselves. It's yeah, it's often easy to miss the bonus features. There was the. The essay you mentioned of the uh, the the visual correlation of the front, <laughs> the the symmetry of narrative the narrative symmetry, yeah, yeah, uh, and then there's uh, there's the audio commentary. I did not listen to the well, audio I commentary. I never listen to the audio commentary. I don't, I can't afford to watch the movie. You don't want to have to watch the movie twice. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's. I so, mean, there's a universe where we make that podcast, and that's a podcast where we release once a month. You you should find a way to just treat the audio commentary as a podcast and listen to it after you watch the movie. Oh um, yeah, I'm sure Criterion's going to well, make that an easy thing to get. Well, certainly not. Certainly not. I'm gonna have but like anyway. a phone playing in my car next well, to me, it, like yeah. Don't sleep, phone. At least yeah. this is a short film, and it's not like I'm saying, "Hey, did you listen to commentary for the entire duration of Fanny and Alexander?" Well, I I'm going to ask you a really serious, <laughs> very personal question. Um, how how old is your is your child right now? I'm curious actually. I've or it's on the not, way, not right? Not born yet. Not born. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. Four um, I'll get back not to me about yet. hour and forty seven minute films later, <laughs> <laughs> and let me know how that goes. Whether that's a short or a long <laughs> film. 
<laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, Fair no, enough. I just, I'm just playing. Anyway, but like, um, no, Jason, why did you bring up the? Why did you bring up the commentary? Uh, and Goddard. So first of all, I need to admit I got about a half hour into the commentary and stopped. Well, there you go. Okay. <laughs> I ran out of time. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. <laughs> no, yeah, but, I feel you. Yeah, that that's not as bad as saying I didn't actually watch the Alien yeah. film I've been ranting about for two hours. But yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> right, actually right. watch all the commentary either. Um, that's okay. But the reason you watch more of it than we so did. Men- so. Yeah. So you mentioned Goddard. And Tarantino in his intro also mentioned Godard, and a lot of essays on the subject bring up Godard in reference to Chunking Express and Wong Kar Wai style. Tony Raines, who's an Asian uh, cinema expert who does the commentary for this film, mentions that if you talk to Wong Kar Wai, he'll never really say that he's influenced by Godard or he's influenced by uh, any films of any kind. He brings up what he's reading. So right. when asked about what's influenced him on this film, uh, his response was actually the the novels of Haruki Murakami that he was reading at the time. Okay, very interesting. So very interesting. I yeah. I don't doubt that he's influenced by Godard, and he obviously has a world cinema palette. But it's interesting that from his own description and his own um, memoirs, thoughts, writings on the matter, film never plays into his design. Right. I don't. I don't want to say that I see a a a visual reference to Godard in this movie. Um, I think that politically, this movie is positioned very similarly to masculine feminine, being about young people dealing with dealing with how they're going to get laid is basically you know (laughs) particularly with masculine feminine, Um, but but to a lesser extent here. But also, I think it just it within their respective cultures, they fit into similar spaces is what I mean when I talk about comparing it to to Godard. Uh, what other people might well, mean, let, I don't let's know, also <laughs> let, let's also face facts that whether you intended it or not doesn't mean you didn't do it. Well, right. and, <laughs> right. and that's, right. a, and that's there, a, there's always right. the subconscious influence on these things. Well, yeah. and that that's always a really interesting thing to me, actually, is that like we a thing that happens a lot in film sort of commentary and critique is like, oh, well, who influenced you? And I, to me, that's always struck me as a really wild question because, like, the answer is actually, well, every movie I've ever seen until now. Uh, right, like, right. Like, that yeah, Borges maybe quote I purposely... about being every woman he's ever loved, every book he's ever read, every movie right. he's better seen. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> maybe you had something that you that was in your mind a lot and maybe you can articulate that and say like well you know i had just recently been really in and like sometimes you meet authors and artists that are like that where like well i've been really reading a lot of x or reading a lot of y uh, at the time that i that i was making this and i was really a part of the process but i think just as often the answer is like well you know like you know i've been alive for x number of years and and experienced x number of things and they're all just a part of the amalgamation of who i am right and like that's going to be what the movie is, right? And, and yeah. you know, for obviously for Wong Kar Wai, like what, like literature plays a, a more prominent role in his, in the way he thinks than, than film, without necessarily being the thing that actually is influencing his style or something like that, as much as being like, well, that's what I, what he thinks about, right? You know, it's just an interesting to, 
So yeah, if, it's the difference between a direct influence where you're consciously choosing to do something right. to uh, either emulate or be inspired by something versus the subconscious influence, the indirect influence, which is, you know, every person you've loved, every person you've read, every film you've right, ever seen. Exactly. Right, right, right. So. Yeah. And the way influence works. We've talked about this before, you know. Yeah. Right. And, and and what you pick up on, what you're what you're emulating. Yeah. You, know, you don't even necessarily think about it. Um, and and I would say that with Wong Kar Wai, just what I've seen over like, you know would sort of like it doesn't ever feel like a direct reference to a specific thing per se. Um just because it I don't know, they seem much more uh I don't know how to describe it. They seem much more wide palette than that and to a certain extent. Right. Uh, ex- this movie is really unique, right? Right. Well, that's <laughs> you know, part of it. Yeah. But and, and but right. so were so is every other movie I've seen by Wong Kar Wai. Like, I mean, they're yeah. they're really fascinatingly interesting. Almost, they feel very unique works of art. That like, yeah. I mean, there's obviously references. You could probably find a lot of them actually but like the the way they're assembled is feels wholly unique that uh, i i really yeah i've yet to watch a one car wide movie that i didn't like i did watch 2046 like nearly tw- what tw- wait 15 18 years ago yeah. and i did not yeah. get it i'm excited to watch it again someday uh i was clearly not of a mental maturity level to get anything out of that movie <laughs> When I watched it, <laughs> I watched that in like sophomore year of college or whatever. And I was like, I don't, I don't, or whenever it was released on DVD in the United States, whatever year that was, I watched it. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening here at all. I'm, I zoned well, out or something. Now you also have a little more context because exactly. there is that spiritual connection to in the mood for love. Absolutely. And I right. think that's right. why I'm excited to someday re-engage with that movie and find out like, like I would probably, I'm certain that I will get a lot more out of it. But also, if I think back to, like, In the Move for Love and even this, like, I, I almost feel like these movies are rec- sort of require a certain require a certain something out of their audience in terms – I don't want to call it, like, emotional maturity, but it kind of feels like that as, a, as an idea in the sense that, like, at some point in your life, you're not – you've not experienced enough stuff for this to even make sense, right? You can be of an age where you watch this and you're like, I don't – know what's actually happening here and i definitely was that when i was like 20 like 19 years old for sure um and 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 the things that have happened since then helped to recontextualize the things that and we've talked about this in the, the place of the audience in the in the movie experience before but i feel that's uniquely seems it feels uniquely true for me with one car Wai in the sense that like you need to be in a place where this is going to make sense or it's not going to make sense like it's just yeah 16 year old me would not understand this movie is what i'm saying i I think it's interesting you bring that up because i think chunking express requires an emotional maturity but i think it's one that you can sort of grasp maybe like in your 20s once you've had some relationships and you've had some experiences to build that up in the mood for love is something that i don't think i could have appreciated the emotion that went into that were i not already you know, married in a long-term relationship, right, having dealt yeah. with the ups and downs that go with that. Right. Yeah, I mean, and and I wouldn't want to, like, discount anybody from the experience. Like, obviously, 16-year-old me would understand this movie. But, like, I don't know that I would have engaged with it as much as I did. 
you know, at this time. And, like, In the Mood for Love, for example, like, yeah, like, I imagine that In the Mood for Love is going to be one of those movies that, depending on how, where you are in your life when you watch it, you it will it will always be an emotionally impactful film. It just how that functions in your life will change. I, I imagine if I watch it now, I will experience something that I, different than what I wa- experienced, pretty substantially different than I experienced seven years ago or whatever when I watched it the first yeah. time. Uh, and had I well, watched I, it when I, I was think... eighteen, it would have been totally different. I think the hardest thing about In the Mood for Love for a lot of people to grasp is that that feeling of being in that committed relationship and having those complex emotions regarding happiness and sameness right. and change and just stuff that if you haven't been there and haven't been able to appreciate how some of that stuff feels, you might just end up thinking these people are horrible. Yeah. yeah 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 that's definitely possible i mean I for that. sure like and that but that is a that's also kind of a valid takeaway right like there's also a there's a world where you get that out of the movie and it's like you're not wrong like <laughs> you know you're 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 not and 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 you know yeah i think it's and i think that's where part of the value of it comes from is that like everybody's gonna like kind of get a different sort of angle on it depending on where they're viewing it from and it but it's always a valid and interesting angle to have on it yeah um well, this the, one is a little bit more hard, straightforward hardest... than that one yeah i i was just gonna say the hardest thing for me to appreciate with in the mood for love until i was really there to experience it was just that it's not even necessarily in, in that situation about not wanting to be with the person you're with. It's just about the sort of wearing down that can come with, with time and, and repetitiveness mm-hmm. and when things just aren't going well and it not being about not loving your partner. It's just uh, not necessarily like a cry for help, but it's it's just like an outburst of emotion. It's a bit of an escapism thing. It's a really complex thing to sit with and process and think through. Whereas, you know, prior to being in, in the situation I'm in right now, I probably would have just not understood just how complex that situation can actually be to be in and to experience and feel. Right. right. Yeah. That's right. definitely, there's definitely, that's definitely true. And I, I think it'll be really, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching in the mood for love, like 15, 20 years from now. <laughs> and seeing yeah. how I how I reconcile it in my mind, it, like it is probably the my, f- and this has really set me up a lot so far in the in the process of this. This is still, I think, maybe my favorite film we've ever watched. Like I can yeah. say pretty definitively, it's, it's it's a close tie with something like Yee Yee and a couple other ones that I really like emotionally connected to deeply. Yeah. Um, and so like this one is this one I really enjoyed this, but it, it's still probably because that's sort of a first love sort of thing like i i don't know that it got quite to that spot with for me with this one uh, i very so, much enjoyed it i loved it but you know it's interesting that you say that because i i will hands down acknowledge that in the mood for love is a better film and that it is a much more emotionally complex experience to grapple with uh, mm-hmm. but junking express actually remains one of my favorite films of all time simply because well, there's a lot of value to grappling with those complex emotions. This film just hits me a- as like an unbelievable source of hope. 
And yeah, that's yeah, not something you. that I get a lot from film. And I, the first time I watched this was when it was on that preview week on Criterion Channel. And I don't remember what my life was like at that time. I'm pretty sure I was working a job I hated and things were definitely stressful. But it just washed over me and made me feel better about the world. Which was right. such an unusual engagement with a film that that's just... Much in the way in the mood for love has had an impact that's just stuck and set with you. It's had that impact. Right. This film has had that impact and stuck with me. And and I get it. I mean, that, this movie is 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 yep. very wonderful. Right. Uh, I think I think by like objective standards or or by by standards that maybe we don't use. In the yeah. mood for love is don't a have. masterpiece. Right. Uh, it's well, just I mean, there. In the mood <coughs> for love is, is one not, of the few times that I've just sort of like had to watch the movie and then be like, well, I'm done for today. I'm <laughs> right, going to go right, just right. lay down somewhere. Just turn and, off for a little bit. Yeah. Let, Usually I have let to let like, that be. Yeah. Th- that yeah. was just one of them. But this one was like, I mean, like I, I'll give you a, a weird value statement about the way I, one of the ways I can judge a movie. And this is going to sound like this possibly the shittiest thing ever. So we, <laughs> I, I go nowadays we've created a, a sort of media room, uh, in our house that is just sort of ad hoc come into existence. Um, what used to be our tatami room that no one was ever using for anything remotely tatami related. And then we turned it into a TV room essentially, but nobody ever goes in there that or not nobody, but like it's not used very much. And I watch the movies in there, which is great because finally I can have like actual peace and quiet for the most part when I watch these, instead of like also trying to like do 20 other things at the same time. Uh, and so it's worked out really well. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's been going on for, like, six months or whatever. And when a weird value judgment that ha- happens now is, like, how I walk out of that room after I watch one of our movies. <laughs> it's, like, and, like, because, like, I'm, it's the middle of Saturday afternoon. And so, like, everybody's just in the house. And, like, w- the first thing I say to my family when I walk out of the room after watching the movie is a sort of my gut reaction to the film. And, you know, like, this one, I was, like, that was pretty great. And like you know, sometimes I get I'm like, boy, that was a haul, or something like yeah. that. Yeah. It, it really like yeah. if I come out that positive out of it, like smile on my face, like looking like I really like legitimately enjoy myself. That's that's the most ringing endorsement I can give to a movie <laughs> that I watch for this podcast. Like, well, what? Yeah. Dad, dad's smiling, and he's like, seems like he enjoyed himself rather than just went through some sort of <laughs> weird like torture. Yeah. Well, and that speaks to the difference between what's a favorite film and what's a, a best film, so to speak. Like, right, 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 right. A, a movie can be not as artistically inventive or creative or interesting as something else, but if it hits you, that's really yeah. what matters the most. Absolutely. Totally. Listen, canonically, our favorite movie of the podcast is Hudson Hawk. Which right, is which is finally is actually objectively a bad movie. Thing. Yeah, I mean... So. Yeah. This this stands true. It, t- it stands the test of time. Um you know. <laughs> oh boy. Uh but no, I mean I, it, it, like yeah, this thing is just this movie is really like is a legitimately just wonderful experience to watch. I I It really is. We'll sing its praises for a very long time to the people who I mean to nobody because nobody <laughs> talks to me. Um <laughs> I don't I don't I don't have another outlet for 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 conversation about film in this style. So, I mean, it's really yeah. just here. So So good news, bad news. Yes. The world of Wong Kar Wai, the Wong Kar Wai box set, uh-huh. is, doesn't have a spine number. 
That's which means we don't. Bad news. Yeah, we don't. It's good news and bad news at okay. the same time, because uh, it means we don't have to watch uh, uh, seven Wong Wong Kar Wai movies for one spine number. Uh, but it also means that this is our last Wong Kar Wai movie. Oh, really? So we're going through this with, and some through of those other number. ones are not in. It does it. not have a spine. All right, I'll just no, have to watch it's those in on the, my own. It's that's in the box fine. set, but it doesn't have a spine number. Okay, so. that's fine. I just watch those. Well, there's your bonus episode, episode for you. There you no go. We'll kidding, do a Wong actually, like bonus a, a Wong Kar Wai bonus would be would be a really I would be up for it a hundred percent. I think I think we probably need to. So yeah. uh I can finally find out what the, the hell list. was going on in twenty forty six because I will tell you one thing. <laughs> twenty like nineteen year old me did not understand. Like I don't even remember why. I don't even remember I just remember being like so overwhelmed by it that like I was I tried watching I like didn't even zone out because this was pre-smartphone and stuff I didn't have anything else to do I rented it from Hastings the video rental place that exists as far as I can tell only in Kentucky and West Virginia um <laughs> maybe Tennessee I rented it being like oh like the, it was in like it was in this like area that it had like oh like new really like well-regarded international films it's like all right we'll find out uh and I just remember watching it all the way through and being like, well, I don't know what just happened. <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited to try and re-engage with it at some point in the future. So I, I'm really looking forward to you watching 24-6 when walking away. I don't know what just happened, but I love this. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> right, probably, right, probably you know, right, not yeah, understanding probably. it anymore. Just it hitting yeah. you better. Well, I mean, but, yeah. you know, maybe part of it is having sort of the sort of pre-built in knowledge about what to expect from one car Y and some of that kind of stuff that will help me yeah. kind of under yeah at least get something out of it because i remember like being very very confused so uh well, I, I think i mean we talked about emotional maturity and things earlier but i think that's also something i've come to realize as i'm getting older is my view on films has changed a lot from looking for a film with a good story or a good interesting set piece to being more about how the film makes me feel and and how yeah. I get to experience it, and I think there's a lot of stuff that's on my rewatch pile now just to see if it hits me differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, well, certainly. absolutely, certainly. Uh, well, I think we could probably draw this to a close. I'm sure there's a lot we haven't talked about. Oh yeah, I, I mean, can think of lot, things we yeah. haven't talked about. Uh, uh, we could talk about briefly about the Chung King man- mansions, which have their own Wikipedia page, and it was a pretty wild <laughs> yeah. ride to read. And, um yeah and also the fact that it's a surprisingly realistic and varied presentation of hong kong which you don't tend to get in a hong kong film right like, right you look at something from john woo set in hong kong and it's all chinese people whereas in this it's film chinese people got, and birds that's all it is yeah gotta get the doves in the guns count as a people too yeah when you look at this film you've got the indian expats being represented um you've got obviously the chinese you've got a random white guy there because i mean it's a british colony there's going to be one of them hiding somewhere right and then even when you look at the the first detectives uh, and how he talks he gives his voice over in mandarin he speaks in in the presence in heavily accented cantonese when he's calling old girlfriends he he throws in some japanese uh even when he's trying to pick up the lady in the wig he's like Oh, maybe she doesn't speak this language. Try like he tries right. four times in different languages to ask her the same question, even including English. So, 
it, it's right. a fascinating representation. And as per the early part of that commentary, I watched half of. Uh, apparently, a lot of this was drawn from Wong Kar Wai's experience as a child, where he grew up uh, once his family moved to Hong Kong. Grew up in an area where there were a lot of Indians around and a lot of other people who stood out from the the Chinese majority that yeah. uh, he interacted with, and he wanted to properly sort of express with this film. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, it's it's very telling that, like, the language is listed, as you just mentioned, in the, like, description of the film is, you know, we've got Cantonese, Mandarin, English, Japanese, Hindi. Like, it's like, and, it, and, it, and if you feel it in the film, right? Like, you don't get that impression that, like, there's anything even remotely homogenous about Hong Kong in the 90s. And, and yeah. it, it does make and even it just a more like exciting film to watch in many ways. The food that Midnight Express sells. Right, yeah, it's there too. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Fish and chips, chef salad, pizza, kebabs, uh, you know, on down the line. So it's you know it's catering to an international on the ground populace that is showcased in the movie. Right, right. Even if it's not necessarily showcased in our main characters, we we get it. No. And we've got Garfield and Coca-Cola in there. So a little American influence, too. Well, of course, yeah. Obviously the music. <laughs> There's a lot of mamas and papas. Or, or one over and over again. Yeah, it's really just uh, the same, like, three At least it's a great song. And... Yeah. yeah. No, it is good. And put to good and music. And I, 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 I... Go ahead. I was going to say, if we're, if we're, if we're going to keep talking, I do want to <laughs> mention the... The sort of camera effects, you know, the the way violence is handled in the first section of that slow motion and, and motion blur. Yeah. Um, you mean making the audience feel as though violence has been committed <laughs> upon them? It's like, that's how bit. I felt. Yeah, yeah, that, I was like, that I'm going to throw up printing. pretty soon. Yeah. That's how I felt most whereas, of the time. Yeah. Whereas in the second half, the, the slow motion is depression and time lapse right i right. think particularly of when he's leaning against the jukebox in the in the bar waiting for Faye to not show up um yeah it creates a sense of isolation right right um and it kind of creates a sense of isolation in both right because yeah. the isolation of that violence is is something too um Right, we get but it. they we feel get very it when different, she's... right? Like they feel like yeah. like the vi- that that and camera shake makes that violence feel so much more violent than it actually is, in the sense that like it's not like a, a fast paced action scene or anything like that. But like for me at least, it was it made it much more impactful because it was that 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 camera shake and blur really like felt very intense. Yeah, it makes it more visceral. Yeah, right. And I think in both yeah. instances, it makes the emotion of the moment more visceral. Mm. Um, yeah. That, I mean, the movie is well done, I guess. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's all that means to <laughs> I say. Guess that's which is true. a very blase thing to say about well, it. Well, right, but, but it it's is. well done. And I, don't, I, have not, I have not personally, and this is not saying a lot, experienced an action sequence that's done in that way before. Like, I mean, I've obviously seen movies with shaky cam and but this is not that this is something very different. Right. And I don't right. recall encountering this yeah. ever before this. 
So it's funny you mentioned that because I, so I, I was reading through and they kept talking about step printing and I wanted to understand what that actually was. I, I had a pretty good idea and it's recording your film with a longer shutter speed and then printing multiple frames over so that it creates right. a slowdown effect. But when I started looking into it and looking up step printing, it's just pages and pages of chunking express and nothing else. <laughs> right. Well, that's yeah. I mean, I don't recall ever encountering like. Yeah, I mean, uh, like the closest thing I could come up with is the way they. This is gonna sound really dumb, but like the closest I could come up with is the way they did animation in Into the Spider Verse, involved a really okay. funky thing. When when Miles Morales is learning to use his powers and is is not fluid, he's actually I think done it like twelve frames a second and then duplicated out to twenty four or something like that. They do so, which is a an old fashioned animation yep. technique, but like. It makes him seem choppy, especially compared to mm-hmm. the mature Spider-Man who's done it like the full 24 or 60, depending on which version of the film you're, you're watching. Uh, it's the closest thing I can come up with, that, that weird choppiness. But then here you get it extra because it also has this extra blur on it that feels like, because again, you know, you're, you're extending your, your exposure. So it's like got that blurriness that comes with like night filming where you, you leave your, 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 uh, your aperture open for a long time and stuff. It's it's a wild experience. Like I said, it almost made me throw up, but it was a very good experience. <laughs> I got very, very it, ill for a little bit. It almost creates a sense of being drunk and moving quickly. Yeah, like the absolutely. way the right, world right, just right. slurs yeah. together. Yeah. And um, and in that regard, for like the the chase in the opening, you know, which used to it's adrenaline rushes too, right? In both in the in the first section, you know, yeah, it's yeah, you know, and how your body, your mind, your brain, uh, is affected by adrenaline, hyper focus, slow down a peripheral, yeah. Um, so I, it's you know, I it's also have natural. To say, I I never thought I'd say this, but I had the hugest chuckle in the world at a child abduction in this film, and I don't know why. <laughs> It, 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 yeah. It, yeah, it's a it's just a good child abduction. The way that that she's trying to get it out out of the Indian guy, and he turns around and walks away. And it's just like, all right, well, fuck it, I'll take this child, and he just picks her up yeah. and walks out. It's beautiful. It is only very funny because I don't think in that moment we believe that she's capable of hurting that child. Yeah, so no, she took know. her to get ice cream. Like everything right. seems it seems very innocent, she but is, it's also an, all right. This will work for me. She is feeding her a lot of ice cream, though. There's going to be some problems I mean, at home later. Uh, yes, no kidding, right? I'll punish um, you with dental bills. <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, the, that child will be un, unmanageable for at least an hour. <laughs> yes. We'll just be wired to just to the, to the, to the edges there. Oh. <laughs> I, I think it's also interesting because if memory serves, that's before we see her shoot anyone. I think we might have had a different opinion right. of that scene after we had seen her shoot someone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> after we know she's capable of violence. Right. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah. And, but that's also the weird, like the, the violence in that first story is very, it feels very strange because the violence against the, the sort of the drug dealer who set her up at the end is much more visceral to me than the violence earlier where she's walking down. The one where she's walking down the alley feels almost because the of what we talked about earlier feels almost dreamlike it almost feels like dream violence almost it doesn't right. feel quite real whereas that 
that second act of violence feels to me, and this is just my perception of it, feels much more violent. Uh, where you know she shoots the uh, the whatever his name is, I forget. They say his name once, I think, but can't remember now. Yeah. The 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 guy who set her up. Um, the, the guy who I likes Asian know. women in wigs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There he is. Tom. Uh, no, he's, he's called Double Crossing Drug Dealer. That is his official name. Uh, yeah. So the guy, like, I was like, does he have a name? Um, yeah. The that violence just feels much more visceral to me and much more violent than the earlier violence, which for some reason, I guess, probably again because of the shooting style, felt very like this is a dream almost. We know it's real, but doesn't feel real. So. It's, yeah, it's just very good. It's all just very good. Yeah. Uh, I am a little disappointed that we won't be watching any other Wong Kar Wai as part of the main podcast. Uh, and presumably they will not go back and add uh, spine numbers at future dates for an unspined box set. I uh, think you're assuming but... a lot about the Criterion Collection that I, <laughs> I am not willing to assume. <laughs> I guess that's yeah, true. it's entirely possible that they will, but you know that's okay. Yeah. You've got another twenty years or so. Oh right. yeah, I mean right. we are so right. far off from this box set that like it's just not even funny. Um, <laughs> so. uh, but yeah, oh man, this has been really fun, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, doggy. It's been a pleasure. Uh, <laughs> Hi, doggy. Yeah, it's been very good. Um. As I said, no uh, no more Wong Kar Wai spined, so this is our last one on the main podcast for the foreseeable future. Next week, we uh, we get to talk about Lars von Trier's uh, political drama, Europa. Um, it'll okay. be it'll be something. In in any case, we uh, I think we've only seen one von Trier so far with the element of crime. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, this will be different to that, I'm sure. But look forward to it. This week it has been Chungking Express from 1994, and uh, yeah, it's been fun. So yeah, thank you very much for time. listening. Yeah, thank you so much for it's listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Boatari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at lostincriterion.com or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. 
Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at jonathanhape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.